let's do a bit of review. Uh, let's let's back up to question. Now let's let's back up to question nine. Let's do question nine together. It's here. It's not up there. But you guys all have it memorized, so it doesn't matter. Oh, you really? I thought somebody might laugh. You really do. Good. Question nine. What does God require in the first, second, and third commandments? First, that we know and trust God as the only true and living God. Second, that we avoid all idolatry and do not worship God improperly. Third, that we treat God's name with fear and reverence, honoring also His word and works. Question 10, what does God require in the fourth and fifth commandments? Fourth, that on the Sabbath day we spend time, public and private worship of God, rest from routine employment, serve the Lord and others, and so anticipate the eternal Sabbath. Fifth, that we love and honor our father and our mother Submitting to their godly discipline and direction. Question 11. What does God require in the 6th, 7th, and 8th commandments? 6th. That we do not hurt or hate or be hostile to our neighbor, but be patient and peaceful, pursuing even our enemies with love. 7th that we abstain from sexual immorality and live purely and faithfully, whether in marriage or in single life, avoiding all impure actions, looks, words, thoughts, or desires, and whatever might lead to them. Eighth, that we do not take without permission that which belongs to someone else, nor withhold any good from someone we might benefit. And here's our question for today. Let me just read the question and then find out if we have anyone who's memorized it and wants to recite it. Question 12 is, what does God require in the ninth and 10th commandments? Anybody want to give it a shot? Question 9, what does God require in the ninth and 10th commandments? Okay, Reagan, would you like to try it? Okay, what does God require in the ninth and tenth commandments? Rex, Rex, I can't hear. Shh, please. What did you think of? Anybody else? And we can come back to Reagan if she'd like. Rodrickson. Oh, I put the answer up there. What is That's why your hand was up. <laughs> Question 12, what does God require in the ninth and 10th commandments? Nice job, Rod. <laughs> Al was looking to pick it off, so I had to I had to go up and wide. <laughs> Anybody else? Question 13. 
Anyone else? What does God require in the ninth and tenth commandments? Logan. Nice job, Logan. Nice Legos, too. You're welcome. Anyone else? Question 12. Okay, let's say it together. Question 12. What does God require in the ninth and tenth commandments? Ninth, that we do not lie or deceive, but speak the truth in love. Tenth, that we are content, not envying anyone or resenting what God has given them or us. Okay, that brings us to question 13. Question 13 today is, can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Right, no. Well, the uh, catechism answer is a, a bit more drawn out. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Let's say it together. Since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly, but consistently breaks it in thought, word, and deed. Romans 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Earlier in that chapter, in verses 10 through 12, we're told this, None is righteous, no Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become, you remember the word? Worthless. No one does good, not even one. So up until this point, question 13, we've recently been studying what God's standard is. And God's standard is very high. God's standard was first given back in Genesis chapter 2 to Adam. Uh, Adam did not have many rules. Right? You've heard me say, quoting someone else, that it was a, a garden of yes with a tree of no in the middle of it. So many gifts that God gave Adam and Eve. So many blessings He gave them. And there was one rule. One rule so that they would remember who was God and who wasn't. One rule so that they would know that they were under authority, needing to obey and submit to God. And God said, follow this one rule. Follow this one rule and things will be good. If you don't, if you break this law, then you will, what did he tell Adam? You will surely die. In Genesis chapter 3, we read of the fall of Adam and Eve, which this catechism question draws us back to. So God has given us His standard, and His standard are these Ten Commandments. His standard is to to love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. His standard is to love our neighbor as ourself. And now this is very important. Because if we have God's standard, and we think or believe that we obey God's standard, that we obey it perfectly or adequately, then we're going to think that we are able to save ourselves. And we won't understand, this is what all this is driving toward, we won't understand the bad news 
that is necessary to understand before the good news of the gospel makes any sense. So we really start driving that home in this question. Because once we've heard God's standard, the question comes up. Well, can anyone keep that? Is this a standard that maybe me, maybe not me, maybe somebody else, someone out there, can anyone keep this law of God perfectly? Since the fall, no. Theoretically, before the fall, yes. Let's talk about that a little bit. So some of you have heard these phrases. Um, Maybe you haven't, but hopefully this will be helpful. Um, State of innocence, state of sin, state of grace, state of glory. Adam and Eve were created and they existed in, before they sinned, a state of innocence. They were really innocent. They had had never sinned. Since the fall, we know from Scripture, even a newborn baby is not innocent. Right? They're born with the sin of Adam even in them. The guilt of Adam's sin has been imputed to them and it's only a matter of time before they outwardly sin. And those of you who had babies, you know that babies start sinning at a very young age. Me, 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 me. Arch their back and scream at you when you don't give them what they want. Well, is that the point where they become sinful? No. They're doing that because they are what? They're sinners. They're sinners. That's why everyone, that's why everyone sins. So Adam and Eve, before they sinned, they were in what theologians have called a state of innocence, which means they had They had free will in a different way. They had free will in the sense that they were not leaning toward one direction or the other. They were not already bent in one direction toward the other. They had no sinful disposition. None of that. So theoretically, they could have obeyed or they could have disobeyed. They disobeyed. They then entered in from a state of innocence to a state of sin. That's what you were born in. You were born in a state of sin. Let me give you a few of the quotes from the commentaries that were offered in the New City Catechism. God created humans with the capacity to keep His law perfectly. That's Adam and Eve. The capacity to keep His law perfectly. But that was lost when the first human and representative of the human race sinned. As a result of the fall... So here's us born in now a state of sin. As a result of the fall, we are not just spiritually impaired, like it's difficult to obey God's law perfectly. No, we have been spiritually incapacitated. We're not just weak. We have no innate power to obey God's law and glorify Him. If He doesn't help us or assist us, we're goners. So we're spiritually disabled. Think of it that way. We're spiritually disabled. The prophet Jeremiah put it this way in Jeremiah 17, 19. The heart is deceitful beyond all things. It is, it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So there's these things that I do. These bad things that I do. These sins that I do ever since Adam and Eve. Why do I do that? Because my heart actually 
the, the, the core of who I am, the fiber of my, every fiber of my being has been affected by this. My heart is deceitful beyond all things. It is desperately sick. So I need a heart transformation. And you can't change your own heart. You, can't, you ever tried to not want something you want? It's an exercise in futility. Have you ever tried to want something you don't want? You maybe do things to cultivate it, but at the end of the day, if you want something you don't want, you want it. So there's a problem in our heart. That's where the change has to take place. So we are in a state of sin. So what that means is we're now leaning towards, we are bent towards sin. We have these, every single one of us has these sinful desires. And so we're lured and enticed by sin. And in fact, the Bible says in that state of sin, before Christ, before we become a Christian, everything we do is sin. Because Paul says to the Romans, anything that you do that does not proceed from faith is what? Sin. It's missing the mark. Even like good things that you do. Well, they're good things in one sense, like horizontally. You do good things. You're nice to your neighbor. You help an old lady cross the street. You give food to someone who needs food. You, whatever it is, you do these nice things. But if you're not doing them for God's glory, if you're not doing them because you love Him and to honor Him, you're doing them out of other motives, it's missing the mark. And ultimately, on a vertical plane, it's sinful. That's a state of sin. Now, as Christians, we have moved from a state of sin to a state of grace. So if we were bent towards sin, we're bent toward holiness. Here's another quote. And though we fell in Adam, we have been raised with Christ. So think of it this way. In a state of sin, everything I do is sin. Ultimately, everything I do is sin. Everything is wrong. Everything misses the mark. Once I'm in a state of grace... Think about it. You become a Christian. God has sent who to dwell inside of you? The Holy Spirit, God's presence himself, working in you to change you. You now have a real capacity and ability to not sin, but actually love God and honor God and glorify God. And that's because of God's work in you. So Adam and Eve, state of innocence. No one since them in a state of innocence. Now, born in a state of sin. If God saves us, we are in a state of grace. With free will. In other words, we do what we want. We do what we desire. God's not forcing us. God's not making us. God's not coercing us. God's not... None of that. We do what we want to do. But the Christian wants to please God. Wants to honor God. So free will is still at work. But before I was saved, my free will wanted to sin. It wanted my own way. Now that I'm saved, my free will wants God's way. But still, still, I don't obey God's law perfectly. I can't obey God's law perfectly until I'm in a state of glory. State of innocence, state of sin, state of grace. And then one day, by God's grace, we will all be in a state of glory. So think of it this way. 
state of sin. Everything I do is sin. Unable to please God. State of grace on this planet of Christian. I'm able to say no to sin. I'm able to say yes to God. Now think of this. State of glory. Impossible for me to sin. Unable to be selfish. Unable to be greedy. Unable to lust after something that does not belong to me. Unable to speak an unkind word. Unable to have an ungodly thought. When we're in the new heavens and the new earth with our brand new resurrected bodies, minds and hearts and bodies with capacities we can't even imagine, perfected, perfected in glory, unable to sin. But that's not now. We shouldn't deceive ourselves. For now, question 13 says, can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? And the answer is, since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly. Now, quick question. Why do you think they say mere human there? Emily said it. Patrick knows it. Tom knows it. This is, the, this is your opportunity. It's the Sunday school answer. What's the answer? It's always Jesus. Was Jesus a, was he a human? Was he a mere human? No. Since the fall, no mere human, because Jesus, of course, kept God's law perfectly. That's why he was able to be the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly. And, and then here's what we actually do. But, this is like, but rather, consistently, this is you and me, breaks it over and over again. Consistently in three different ways listed. In thought, in word, in deed. It starts at a heart level, a mind level. It works its way out of my mouth because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks and it becomes evident in my actions. I do sinful things. I break God's law. I break God's law because I still have the flesh. I still have a desire to sin. But thank God, and we'll get into this more and more, by God's grace, as I'm in a state of grace now, there's a new desire. There's a Paul talks about this in Romans 7. There's a competition in my heart. There was no competition before. It was just sin, sin, sin. Now, Paul says there's a war that wages within me. And most of you who are Christians identify with that. If you've been a Christian for any significant period of time, you actually know what that feels like. Don't you? You can actually feel this, this war taking place within you. How does Paul describe it? What I want to do, I do not do. And what I don't want to do, I do. So on one level, he's saying, I want to please God. I want to honor God. And I find myself not doing that. And I struggle. I want to resist sin, but, but, but I want to sin more. And that, there's this war that's going on within me. I still have a sinful nature. But it's flesh and the spirit now waging war. And one day, one day, 
that war will be over. The spirit will conquer the flesh. will be unable to sin. So let's say this one together in closing. Question 13. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Say it with me. Since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly, but consistently breaks it in thought, word, and deed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for rescuing us from our sin. We are thankful, God, that we're no longer, as you describe it, in darkness. We're no longer a stranger to you. We're no longer living a life that is bent inward on ourselves and all about us. But God, you have dragged us out of the darkness and into the light. You have given us new life. You've caused us, you say, to be born again. Given us eyes to see and ears to hear. You've put new desires in our heart. Desires to follow you. And then you've given us the ability by your Holy Spirit to actually love you and follow you given us everything we need to say no to ungodliness and yes to you so as your people we pray for more of this we pray that you would make us more like your son jesus that you would fill us with your spirit that our thoughts our words and our deeds would more so be conformed into the image of your son Remind us of your gospel and your grace, even this morning as we listen to your word. We pray as we sing, take communion together. Remind us of this gospel, this good news. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's do a bit of review. Uh, let's, let's back up to question. No, let's, let's back up to question nine. Let's do... Question nine together. It's here, it's not up there. But you guys all have it memorized, so it doesn't matter. Oh, you really, I thought somebody might laugh. You really do. Good. Question nine. What does God require in the first, second, and third commandments? First, that we know and trust God as the only true and living God. Second, that we avoid all idolatry and do not worship God improperly. Third, that we treat God's name with fear and reverence, honoring also His word and works. Question 10. What does God require in the fourth and fifth commandments? Fourth, that on the Sabbath day, we spend time, public and private worship of God, pressed from routine employment, serve the Lord and others, and so anticipate the eternal Sabbath. Fifth, that we love and honor our father and our mother, submitting to their godly discipline and direction. Question 11. What does God require in the sixth, seventh, and eighth commandments? Sixth, 
that we do not hurt or hate or be hostile to our neighbor, but be patient and peaceful, pursuing even our enemies with love. Seventh, that we abstain from sexual immorality and live purely and faithfully, whether in marriage or in single life, avoiding all impure actions, looks, words, thoughts, or desires, and whatever might lead to them. Eighth, that we do not take without permission that which belongs to someone else, nor withhold any good from someone we might benefit. And here's our question for today. Let me just read the question and then find out if we have anyone who's memorized it and wants to recite it. Question 12 is, what does God require in the ninth and 10th commandments? Anybody want to give it a shot? Question 9, what does God require in the ninth and 10th commandments? Okay, Reagan, would you like to try it? Okay, what does God require in the ninth and tenth commandments? Rex, Rex, I can't hear. Shh, please. What did you think of? Shush, shush, Anybody else? And we can come back to Reagan if she'd like. Rodrickson. Oh, I put the answer up there. What is, that's why your hand was up. <laughs> Question 12, what does God require in the ninth and 10th commandments? Nice job, Brad. <laughs> Al was looking to pick it off, so I had to. I had to go up and wide. <laughs> Anyone else? What does God require in the ninth and tenth commandments? Logan. Nice job, Logan. Nice Legos, too. You're welcome. Anyone else? Question 12? Okay, let's say it together. Question 12. What does God require in the ninth and 10th commandments? Ninth, that we do not lie or deceive, but speak the truth in love. Tenth, that we are content, not envying anyone or resenting what God has given them or us. Okay, that brings us to question 13. And question 13 today is, can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Right, no. Well, the uh, catechism answer is a, a bit more drawn out. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Let's say it together. Since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly, but consistently breaks it in thought, word, and deed. 
Romans 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Earlier in that chapter, in verses 10 through 12, we're told this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become, you remember the word? Worthless. No one does good, not even one. So up until this point, question 13, we've recently been studying what God's standard is. And God's standard is very high. God's standard was first given back in Genesis chapter 2 to Adam. Uh, Adam did not have many rules. Right? You've heard me say, quoting someone else, that it was a, a garden of yes with a tree of no in the middle of it. So many gifts that God gave Adam and Eve. So many blessings He gave them. And there was one rule. One rule so that they would remember who was God and who wasn't. One rule so that they would know that they were under authority, needing to obey and submit to God. And God said, follow this one rule. Follow this one rule and things will be good. If you don't, if you break this law, then you will, what did he tell Adam? You will surely die. In Genesis chapter 3, we read of the fall of Adam and Eve, which this catechism question draws us back to. So God has given us His standard, and His standard are these Ten Commandments. His standard is to, to love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. His standard is to love our neighbor as ourself. And now this is very important. Because if we have God's standard, and we think or believe that we obey God's standard, that we obey it perfectly or adequately, then we're going to think that we are able to save ourselves. And we won't understand, this is what all this is driving toward, we won't understand the bad news that is necessary to understand before the good news of the gospel makes any sense. So we really start driving that home in this question. Because once we've heard God's standard, the question comes up, well, can anyone keep that? Is this a standard that maybe me, maybe not me, Maybe somebody else, someone out there. Can anyone keep this law of God perfectly? Since the fall, no. Theoretically, before the fall, yes. Let's talk about that a little bit. So, some of you have heard these phrases. Um, maybe you haven't, but hopefully this will be helpful. Um, state of innocence, state of sin, state of grace, state of glory. Adam and Eve were created and they existed in, before they sinned, a state of innocence. They were really innocent. They had, they had never sinned. Since the fall, we know from Scripture, even a newborn baby is not innocent. Right? They're born with the sin of Adam even in them. The guilt of Adam's sin has been imputed to them and it's only a matter of time before they outwardly sin. And those of you who have babies, you know that babies start sinning at a very young age. Me, 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 me. Arch their back and scream at you when you don't give them what they want. Well, is that the point where they become sinful? No. 
They're doing that because they are what? They're sinners. They're sinners. That's why everyone, that's why everyone sins. So Adam and Eve, before they sinned, they were in what theologians have called a state of innocence, which means they had they had free will in a different way. They had free will in the sense that they were not leaning toward one direction or the other. They were not already bent in one direction toward the other. They had no sinful disposition. None of that. So theoretically, they could have obeyed or they could have disobeyed. They disobeyed. They then entered in from a state of innocence to a state of sin. That's what you were born in. You were born in a state of sin. Let me give you a few of the quotes from the commentaries that were offered in the New City Catechism. God created humans with the capacity to keep his law perfectly. That's Adam and Eve. The capacity to keep his law perfectly. But that was lost when the first human and representative of the human race sinned. As a result of the fall, so here's us born in now a state of sin. As a result of the fall, we are not just spiritually impaired, like it's difficult to obey God's law perfectly. No, we have been spiritually incapacitated. We're not just weak. We have no innate power to obey God's law and glorify Him. If He doesn't help us or assist us, we're goners. So we're spiritually disabled. Think of it that way. We're spiritually disabled. The prophet Jeremiah put it this way in Jeremiah 17, 19. The heart is deceitful beyond all things. It is, it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So there's these things that I do. These bad things that I do, these sins that I do ever since Adam and Eve. Why do I do that? Because my heart, actually, the, the, the core of who I am, the fiber of my, every fiber of my being has been affected by this. My heart is deceitful beyond all things. It is desperately sick. So I need a heart transformation. And you can't change your own heart. You, can't, you ever tried to not want something you want? It's an exercise in futility. Have you ever tried to want something you don't want? You maybe do things to cultivate it, but at the end of the day, if you want something you don't want, you want it. So there's a problem in our heart. That's where the change has to take place. So we are in a state of sin. So what that means is we're now leaning towards, we are bent towards sin. We have these, every single one of us has these sinful desires. And so we're lured and enticed by sin. And in fact, the Bible says in that state of sin, before Christ, before we become a Christian, everything we do is sin. Because Paul says to the Romans, anything that you do that does not proceed from faith is what? Sin. It's missing the mark. Even like good things that you do. Well, they're good things in one sense. Like horizontally, you do good things, you're nice to your neighbor, you help an old lady cross the street, you give food to someone who needs food, you, whatever it is, you do these nice things. But if you're not doing them for God's glory, if you're not doing them because you love him and to honor him, you're doing them out of other motives, it's missing the mark and ultimately 
on a vertical plane, it's sinful. That's a state of sin. Now, as Christians, we have moved from a state of sin to a state of grace. So we're bent towards sin. We're bent toward holiness. Here's another quote. And though we fell in Adam, we have been raised with Christ. So think of it this way. In a state of sin, everything I do is sin. Ultimately, everything I do is sin. Everything is wrong. Everything misses the mark. Once I'm in a state of grace, think about it. You become a Christian. God has sent who to dwell inside of you? The Holy Spirit, God's presence himself, working in you to change you. You now have a real capacity and ability to not sin, but actually love God and honor God and glorify God. And that's because of God's work in you. So Adam and Eve, state of innocence. No one since them in a state of innocence. Now, born in a state of sin. If God saves us, we are in a state of grace with free will. In other words, we do what we want. We do what we desire. God's not forcing us. God's not making us. God's not coercing us. God's not none of that. We do what we want to do. But the Christian wants to please God. Wants to honor God. So free will is still at work. But before I was saved, my free will wanted to sin. It wanted my own way. Now that I'm saved, my free will wants God's way. But still, still, I don't obey God's law perfectly. I can't obey God's law perfectly until I'm in a state of glory. State of innocence, state of sin, state of grace. And then one day... By God's grace, we will all be in a state of glory. So think of it this way. State of sin. Everything I do is sin. Unable to please God. State of grace on this planet of Christian. I'm able to say no to sin. I'm able to say yes to God. Now think of this. State of glory. Impossible for me to sin. Unable to be selfish. Unable to be greedy. Unable to lust after something that does not belong to me. Unable to speak an unkind word. Unable to have an ungodly thought. When we're in the new heavens and the new earth with our brand new resurrected bodies Minds and hearts and bodies with capacities we can't even imagine. Perfected, perfected, in glory, unable to sin. But that's not now. We shouldn't deceive ourselves. For now, question 13 says, can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? And the answer is, since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly. Now, quick question. Why do you think they say mere human there? Emily said it. Patrick knows it. Tom knows it. This is, the, this is your opportunity. It's the Sunday school answer. <laughs> What's the answer? 
always Jesus. Was Jesus a, was he a human? Was he a mere human? No. Since the fall, no mere human because Jesus, of course, kept God's law perfectly. That's why he was able to be the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly. And, and then here's what we actually do. But, this is like, but rather, consistently, as you and me, breaks it over and over again. Consistently in three different ways listed. In thought, in word, in deed. It starts at a heart level, a mind level. It works its way out of my mouth because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks and it becomes evident in my actions. I do sinful things. I break God's law. I break God's law because I still have the flesh. I still have a desire to sin. But thank God, and we'll get into this more and more, by God's grace, as I'm in a state of grace now, there's a new desire. There's a Paul talks about this in Romans 7. There's a competition in my heart. There was no competition before. It was just sin, sin, sin. Now, Paul says, there's a war that wages within me. And most of you who are Christians identify with that. If you've been a Christian for any significant period of time, you actually know what that feels like. Don't you? You can actually feel this, this war taking place within you. How does Paul describe it? What I want to do, I do not do. And what I don't want to do, I do. So on one level, he's saying, I want to please God. I want to honor God. And I find myself not doing that. And I struggle. I want to resist sin, but, but, but I want to sin more. And that, there's this war that's going on within me. I still have a sinful nature. But it's flesh and the spirit now waging war. And one day, one day, that war will be over. The spirit will conquer the flesh. We'll be unable to sin. So let's say this one together in closing. Question 13. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Say it with me. Since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly, but consistently breaks it in thought, word, and deed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for rescuing us from our sin. We are thankful, God, that we're no longer, as you describe it, in darkness. We're no longer a stranger to you. We're no longer living a life that is bent inward on ourselves and all about us. But God, you have dragged us out of the darkness and into the light. You have given us new life. You've caused us, you say, to be born again. You've given us eyes to see and ears to hear. You've put new desires in our heart. Desires to follow you. And then you've given us the ability by your Holy Spirit to actually love you and follow you given us everything we need to say no to ungodliness 
and yes to you. So as your people, we pray for more of this. We pray that you would make us more like your son, Jesus, that you would fill us with your spirit. That our thoughts, our words and our deeds would more so be conformed into the image of your son. Remind us of your gospel and your grace, even this morning as we listen to your word, we pray as we sing, take communion together. Remind us of this gospel, this good news. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.